Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Greetings from Elisa Viejo, from your brothers and sisters in Christ down there. We're uh, so happy to hear the great reports of what God is doing here up in Huntington Beach. Um, my wife and I, actually, when we first got married, lived here in Huntington Beach and lived here for quite a while. Love the community. We're excited that God has, uh, has started this church. I was, uh, I was reading through First uh, Thessalonians, and I know Pastor Bobby's taking you through that book. And uh, one of the things that caught my attention in First Thessalonians was the idea that, uh, that Timothy uh, went all the way to Corinth to spend time with Paul there. And what he did was give him a report on a church called the Thessalonian church. And the report he gave him was a great report. And the result from the people that heard the report was they were comforted by the faith and by the love of the people. And I feel that way every time I talk to Pastor Bobby when we come up here or he comes down our way to provide the report of what's happening here in Huntington Beach. The gospel truly is ringing out. God is doing a great work here. And uh, I can tell you as one of the pastors from Elisa Viejo, we are greatly comforted and excited about what's happening here. Now that I've got all of that out, I do have some serious concerns. One concern is this. Does Pastor Bobby understand what a 5K is? <laughs> now, a 5K is about 3.1 miles. Now, I've known Pastor Bobby for about nine years. I wouldn't count him as one of the most athletic guys, and I'm saying that in the nicest way possible. So one of the other reasons I'm here this week is that he's been undergoing specialized training so that perhaps he could even walk the, uh, the 5K. So, Hopefully one of those things will happen, but it's a great honor to be here. We're excited. Uh, Pastor Bobby, your leader here is fabulous. I remember the first time I met Pastor Bobby uh, some nine years ago. Uh, what happened, uh, we were in a temple, actually. We weren't in the location that we were now. We're in a Jewish temple. We were doing services on Sundays at 3.30 and 5.30 in the afternoon, and I was looking for a high school pastor, and this uh, very, very nice lady walked up to me, and said, she grabbed my arm, and she just said two words. She said, Bobby Blakey. And I was like, Bobby Blakey? What's a Bobby Blakey? And then she elaborated. She said, no, you've you got to talk to this guy. He is an amazing candidate for your youth pastor's position. And so I called this guy named Bobby Blakey, and uh, he came down and interviewed with me. Uh, Tyler had just been born, and, uh, and when I met him, I don't know if you do any interviewing, but I do a lot of interviewing. But uh, probably like maybe five minutes into the interview, I'm thinking, this guy is the greatest guy in the world. And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, I don't know if you're going to hire me, but he goes, I want to come to Compass Bible Church so badly that I'll take a job as a custodian to work here. And he meant it. And uh, he was a blessing to our church in Elisa Viejo. He blessed many people's lives, including mine. And I'm excited again to see what's happening here in Huntington Beach among some of my friends that uh, were in Elisa Viejo and come up here to plant this church. And then many of you that I don't even know uh, were just excited that God is working and vibrant and active here. One of the things I enjoy quite a bit about being a pastor is helping people kind of work problems out. Uh, the, the fancy word is counseling. And pastors do a lot of counseling. I do probably from 20 to 25 counseling appointments every single week. And, and I enjoy working with people that are trying to fix problems. 
Uh, you know, I thought about it this week alone, uh, the types of people that have conflict, the types of people that are, that are in trouble and trying to fix things, uh, most of the people uh, are in marriages that are struggling. I'd say almost like 60% of the counseling appointments I take are people that are struggling in their marriages and they're struggling hard. Some of them are struggling so hard that they want to exit. They'd like to get a divorce. They'd like to move along. Uh, the next level is probably parenting. Uh, something really funny happens when you have children. I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but when you get married, life is usually pretty good, and then life is ruined when you have kids, okay? <laughs> and what happens is, is that when you have children, children and bills ruin every marriage that's out there, okay? And you have these kids, and, and then when you get through the kids, the, the, the beginning paid diapers, you throw that last diaper away, and you're thinking, this is awesome. You're right, it's awesome. And until they hit puberty, it is the golden years. And when they hit puberty, folks, it's downhill from there. I think it's tougher to be a parent when your kid is in the teenage years up into the early 20s. I had a friend one time tell me that when your kid, Michael, our oldest kid, when he turns 13, your best bet is to chain him uh, to the post of his bedroom and leave him there, give him three meals and homeschool him and just don't talk to him again until he's like 22 or 23 years old. And I thought that was kind of harsh, but... Uh, but after a while, it was like, yeah, I, I could see that. There was wisdom in it. So parenting issues are pretty big. Uh, family issues where, uh, where even now uh, our parents become a problem. And uh, as, as our parents are getting older, uh, my father died three years ago. Uh, my mom is 76 years old. And, and now there, there are issues the other way. You know, not where you're dealing with your children. Now you're dealing with your mom and dad as they get older and they need help. And that becomes complicated. Uh, other areas are, are, are conflicts that we have sometimes with our brothers and our sisters, our biological brothers and sisters. And then, uh, and then we have a lot of problems sometimes with people in church where we'll be fighting with a, with a fellow brother and sister in church. And, and many times in these conflicts, people feel disrespected. Uh, they feel rejected. They feel conflicted. They feel unwanted. They feel unloved, and it becomes a big problem. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it, as a people, the people of God, why is it that we even have Why is it that we even fight? And I think the Bible answers that. Uh, you don't have to turn there just, but listen to me and, and jot it down. You can see this on your home. But uh, James, in chapter number four, says this. He asks the rhetorical question in verse number one, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't that a great question? Why is it that I fight with other people? Why is it that I have quarrels with other people? And James asks the rhetorical question and he answers it. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And then he uses some extreme uh, hyperbole and metaphor when he says, you desire and you don't get what you want, so you murder. You covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And essentially what James is saying is the reason that we fight, the reason that we're in conflict is that we're in this war, uh, if we're Christians, with a spirit that's indwelt in us as a guarantee and a deposit of the faith we have in Jesus Christ and our own flesh. And when we let our flesh win those battles, we'll find ourselves in conflict that we don't need and God doesn't want in our lives. 
So how is it if you're sitting there today, and I think everybody has problems and conflicts in their lives, broken relationships, relationships that we've given up on, that perhaps we've tried hard to find some kind of place. We've maybe said we agree to disagree and we've kind of moved on from them. How is it that us, the people of God, how is it that we're to handle conflict? How is it that we're to handle broken relationships? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How is it that you and I can be known as peacemakers? What does it take to be a peacemaker? How is it that we can get beyond this agreeing to disagree? How is it this morning that we could commit in a new and fresh way to say, you know what, I want to reestablish my relationships, and especially the relationships that are perhaps broken. The Bible has a lot to teach us in this area of forgiveness and broken relationships, and I want to invite you to turn to the book of Micah. You've been doing a lot of things in the New Testament. I'm going to bring the New Testament to you, or the Old Testament to you. Um, Micah chapter number 7. Now Micah is one of 12 minor prophets. Uh, if you remember your minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and then the final four, Zephaniah, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and the Italian prophet Malachi. You remember that guy, Malachi? So we have all 12 minor prophets. Now these minor prophets are not minor because they didn't have important things to say. They become minor uh, because the volume uh, of writing that they have is not up to what Isaiah is, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Daniel, better known as our major prophets. And what prophets do, you might want to ask, prophets speak for God. In the Old Testament, that is the way the people, God's people, heard from the Lord, is that the prophets spoke to the people. The high priests represented the people to God, right? And the prophets, they heard from God, and they then told what God was going to be doing and what God wanted them to do. That's what a prophet did. Then this Micah guy, he is a guy uh, that was around in about 700 B.C. And one of the kings uh, that he ministered to uh, was a king by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was in the southern part of Israel. Israel was a divided country at that point. You had the northern and the southern tribes. And Micah, Micah is a guy that is ministering to the southern tribes. And the southern tribes have got problems, big problems. And one of the problems that they have is idolatry. Uh, they've turned away from Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, and they've had these new gods that have come in, these Canaanite gods. God's like Moloch. God's like Baal and Ashtoreth. And they are starting to worship these gods. And, and God, the God of the Bible, uh, is, is angry. He's a jealous God. And, and so he communicates through his prophets and he says, repent, you need to stop. And the people, they don't stop. Eventually the northern kingdom is wiped out by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom got to watch. And as they watched their brothers die and be exiled, all for idolatry, they still had an opportunity to repent. And they don't. And yet Micah, in God's faithfulness, comes to them again and again saying, repent. And that's the story 
of the Israelites, right? They have a period of rest where they're good with God. Then they relapse into sin. They're punished, so they go into ruin. And then from ruin, they have the opportunity to go into repentance. And from repentance to restoration with God. And then back to rest again. Did you get that? Do you see the circle of the Israelites? It's rest, relapse, ruin. They repent, they restore, and they rest again. Here in Micah chapter number 7, verses 18 and 19 and 20, these are the last three verses of the book of Micah. And in these verses, hear what Micah is saying through the Lord. Verse number 18 of Micah chapter 7, Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in hesed, steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And why? Because you'll show faithfulness. You'll show faithfulness to the covenants that you've made. Faithfulness to Jacob and the steadfast hesed love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Now this is quite a promise. This is quite a God. It's a God that was worth worshiping this morning, right? A God that is that merciful and gracious and kind that doesn't hold our sin against us. That if we, we claim the blood of Christ, that today if we repent of our sin and place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin is covered. Our sin is covered. Now this idea of Micah. Micah is, is short for the name Michael. Michael. Now Michael is a Hebrew name. And it's a name that comes from three little Hebrew words. Little Hebrew this morning? Mi, Ka, and El. Mi, Ka, and El. Michael. Mi is who? Ka is a comparative clause. Like. Who is like. And El is? What's El? It's God. Mi, Ka, El. Micah's name is, who is like God? Who is like this? There could be nobody like this, is what Micah is saying. And Micah, in a play on words, is using his own name in verse number 18. Who is a God like you? Who is that God? Who is a God that has compassion, mercy, and forgiveness? Would you look with me for a second in Colossians chapter number 3? Because I want to identify another, another person that is just like God in this situation. Colossians chapter number 3. Now the book of Colossians in the New Testament is a letter written to the church at Colossae, which is in southern Turkey. It is written by the Apostle Paul. Paul is in prison at this time. And he never ever went to this church. He didn't plant this church directly. But these people are having problems. And they're having multiple problems inside their church. First is coping with the divinity of Christ. In the first couple of chapters of, uh, of Colossians, that's what Paul deals with. 
And, and in the end of Colossians, he's dealing with, well, how do, how do we interact with one another? And here in Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 12 with me. And let me identify perhaps someone else that's just like God in this matter. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, uh, put on these things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. What Paul is saying to the church is, let people know if you're really a Christian, if you're really saved, they should know you by these attributes, by these traits. Compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one, of you, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, here comes a comparative clause, how? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Well, wait a minute. Who is like God back in Micah? Micah's talking all about God being this incredibly forgiving entity. And now here Paul is saying that we too must forgive the way that, uh, that God has forgiven Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, not very far away. And Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, also while he's in jail, a prison epistle in chapter number 4, takes up the same topic. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31. Paul says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander uh, be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 31 of chapter 4. Look at 32. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. And here it comes again. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. You see, who is like God in this area of forgiveness? You. Me. We're called to be just like God in this area of conflict and forgiveness. You see, our God has communicable and non-communicable attributes. A communicable attribute would be one like this, like forgiveness. God is a forgiving God. You and I could be forgiving people. God is a merciful God. We could be very merciful. God is compassionate. We could be compassionate. Those are communicable attributes. Those are things about God that we could do too. Now there are non-communicable attributes. Um, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Boy, I would love to be omnipresent. I can't be because it's a non-communicable attribute of God. God is omniscient. God knows everything. That's a non-communicable attribute. But this attribute here of forgiveness is critically important. And when we're dealing with conflict, we have to make a decision that we are going to deal with it. We can't push it away to the side. We can't agree to disagree. We have to take it head on. And we want to take it head on, mercifully, kindly, with compassion, the attributes that God has provided for us. But we have to make that first decision before doing anything to say, we're going to take this on. And in your outline, what I wrote for you is this. I said, choose to deal with conflict. Choose to deal with conflict like God does. Not like you do, but like God does. 
Peyton Manning is a, is, is a pretty good football player. I don't know if you know who he is, but Peyton Manning has been a football player for many, many years. He played at the University of Tennessee. Uh, he played for the Indianapolis Colts. He plays for the Denver Broncos right now. Probably one of the best football players that ever, ever, ever played the game. Five-time NFL MVP. Most touchdown passes in one season, 55. Most passing yards, 5,477 passing yards in one season. That's over three miles, almost like your, uh, your 5K. Most consecutive seasons with at least 20 touchdown passes, 13 of those. Most games with a perfect passing uh, uh, record, four of those. Only quarterback with at least six touchdown passes in three games. Only one of seven quarterbacks in the history of the NFL to have one uh, game where he, where he threw seven touchdown passes in a game. He's won the Super Bowl. He's not only won the Super Bowl, but he was also the MVP of the Super Bowl. Amazing guy. Amazing guy. Do you think that you could replicate that? Do you think you could be like Peyton Manning? Probably not. Probably not. But Peyton Manning has another side. He's a Christian. At the age of 13, Manning said, I committed my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that faith has been most important to me ever since. Manning said his priorities ranked in order are faith, family, friends, and then football. Football was last for him. Manning says he prays every night before games, prays with his family. He quote, he says, I hope and pray I don't have to do too many things to displease him before I get to heaven myself. I want to do what the Lord has. I believe, too, that life is much better and freer when I'm committed to the Lord uh, and I'm doing God's will in my life. Now, not many of us are going to be able to replicate what Peyton Manning has done in the National Football League. But the other side that is communicable to us, right? We could be just like that. We could be someone that says, you know what? The most important thing in my life is my faith. And then my family, and then my friends, and then whatever I do. That becomes a communicable attribute. So if you're with me, and you're thinking, yeah, you know what? I think I want to take care of some problems in my life. Could I direct you to Isaiah chapter number one? Because I want to give you the first step in being able to deal with conflict in your life and broken uh, relationships. Isaiah chapter number one, we're going to look at a couple verses, verses 18, 19, and 20. Because we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to take this step, if we're going to forgive the way that, uh, that God forgives, how do we do it? Isaiah chapter 1, look at verse number 18. If we're going to fix problems like God, here we go. Look at the first thing in verse number 18, what God says. Come now and what? Let us reason together, says the Lord. I don't even need to go any further than that. This is the God of heaven and earth looking at his people saying, come now, let us reason together. Much of the conflict that we have in our life, we lose out on because we're not willing to sit down at the table of reconciliation and reason and talk and discuss uh, with the people that we're in conflict with. And yet here, our God has, has set the table for his people. His people have committed idolatry. They have done all kinds of horrible things. And yet here in Isaiah, the first thing that Yahweh is directing Isaiah to, come now, let us reason together. Let's sit and talk. You know, I know sometimes we're in conflict with one another and, and we're angry and we're hot and we're not in a position to talk. 
That's a great time to go for a walk. It's a great time to pray. But when you're done with the walk and you're done with prayer, come down to the table and reason. Just like Christ has reasoned with you. Look at this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. They, they, though they are red like crimson, uh, they shall become like wool. Look at verse 19. If you're willing, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Sometimes you can be obedient and not really willing. But here, Isaiah puts it together to say that our hearts have got to be willing and we want to obey as well. And the converse of it is true, but if we refuse and rebel, uh, we shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord uh, has spoken. So this idea, again, if we're going to be like God, if we're going to forgive like God, then we want to be in a place where we're going to reason with people, we're going to have soft hearts like the Colossians passage uh, gave us, and we're going to be able to, to actually want to remedy problems in our lives. Look back at the Micah passage, if you have it still in front of you, and look at the second part of verse number 18. Because it says here that, that Yahweh, that God does not retain his anger forever. And boy, is that a good thing. Because he delights in, we talked about it, we sang the song about steadfast love. The Hebrew here is hesed. He delights in steadfast love. And the promise of verse 19 is he will have compassion on us. So let's talk a little bit about how we get to a place of anger. Anger doesn't happen overnight. Usually what happens in relationships that we have with people is someone hurts our feelings. And as soon as our feelings are hurt, um, we come to a place of, of wanting to hopefully remedy those hurt feelings. And if we don't, what will happen next is you will, you'll watch how someone has hurt you Someone has done something wrong to you. You'll watch it in your mind over and over and over again. And if that person doesn't try to make it good with you, then you're going to leave hurt feelings after a little while. And you're going to move from hurt feelings to anger. Because you're going to be angry at that person. Because they've harmed you. They've hurt you. And they don't want to work it out with you. And they're just continuing on. And if you live with anger and you continue to live with anger, eventually your anger will turn to bitterness. And from bitterness to hard-heartedness. I told you I see a lot of people for counseling. Most of the people, before they pick up a telephone and identify themselves as we're struggling in our marriage or we're struggling with this thing with our kid or whatever, they've already, they've already gone by hurt feelings. They've already eclipsed anger. And they're usually somewhere in the vicinity of bitterness and hard-heartedness. And you see, it, doesn't, it just doesn't happen overnight. And if that's not resolved in the broken relationships that you have in your life, you are going to live with anger. And, and being owned, your decision-making, uh, the way you view life, the way you are in your Christian relationship, if you are owned by anger, that is certainly not the way God wants you to be living. Look for a moment at James chapter number 1, uh, verses 19 and 20. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And, uh, and James has something to say about the idea of anger in our lives. Look at 
Verse number 19 of James chapter 1 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You can write these Proverbs down. Proverbs 29, 11. Proverbs 15, 18. Proverbs 22, 24. Proverbs 14, 29. It's all great Proverbs that are going to tell you and they tell me as well that living in anger is not the way God wants us to live. And anger is, I'm telling you, it's the number one problem. The number one problem in marriages today. It's the number one problem in broken relationships today is your personal anger. And God here in James chapter 1 and the Proverbs I gave you, Proverbs 20, 11, 15, 18, 22, 24, and 14, 29 uh, will encourage you not to live in anger. And it's something we need to repent of. Matter of fact, in the passage, in the Micah passage, what is it that God replaces his anger? He says, you know what? His anger is a righteous anger. What's he replace his anger with? What does it say in the text? Compassion. It's compassion. Do you remember the Colossians passage? If you have compassion towards other people, it is very difficult for you to be angry with them. Matter of fact, I would say it's impossible. If you're compassionate and merciful to others, it will be impossible for you to be angry at them. And there's all kinds of anger. I mean, there, there's active anger. There are people that are yellers and screamers. And they're easy to figure out because they're yelling and screaming. But I'll tell you one thing. There are people that are, that are passive, aggressive people that have a deep-seated anger that's so built in the bottom part of their heart, and they maybe never say anything. And they're just as angry as the yeller and screamer. The yeller and screamer gets in a lot of trouble because they're yelling and screaming, but there's a sense at least of a little bit of honesty with the yeller and screamer because you know they're mad. But the person that is deep-seated in those people struggle just as much as the yellers and screamers. And it's a life that Jesus Christ doesn't want for any of us. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 25. Same, same area that we were in before. And I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about different kinds of anger. Because certainly the anger that, that God has in our passage uh, today is a righteous anger. Most of the anger that you and I have perhaps is not qualified as a righteous anger. It's usually we're mad about something uh, that does not qualify. It qualifies for the James passage. We're not getting what we want. Or someone isn't loving us the way that we want to be loved. And that's, that's, that's a non-righteous anger. Paul writes here in verse number 25, if you could drop your eyes to chapter 4 of Ephesians, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. There's a good, there's a good thought, speaking truth to one another. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin presupposes that there is a righteous anger that's out there. Sometimes in counseling, what will happen for me is, uh, is I do a lot of adultery counseling. And sometimes the adultery is found out right in the middle of the counseling room. And the victim of the adultery gets really upset, really angry. And the anger that they have is a righteous anger. They've been betrayed. They've been lied to. They've been deceived. That's a, a righteous anger. I don't sit in a counseling room going, hey, better stop doing that. Better stop yelling. That's not right. I'm usually like, play on. But the anger that you and I have, if we're honest about it, if we audit the things that we're really mad about, are usually we're not getting our way. We're usually not getting something that we want from another person or from another situation. And it makes us angry. It's hurt our feelings and we, we've run with it too far. So in this anger, do not sin. And we look at our anger, uh, we want to be men and women that are going to repent of it, especially if it's a non-righteous anger. And look what it says next. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That means if you're at enmity with your spouse, with your kids, whoever it is, you cannot, you will not, you should not put your head on a pillow until you've worked it out with them. I have two boys, one, uh, one's off at college and one soon will be off to college. And uh, I, can, I can remember clearly having many, many discussions uh, with my older son. And when he was 16 years old and 17 years old, when the big issues start coming up with girls and all kinds of different things, and, and, and inevitably it seemed like the discussion would begin at 10.30 p.m. after homework. Like, I don't want to sit and have a long debate or have to reconcile something starting at 10.30 p.m. But that's when they started. I can remember one time uh, on a particular issue starting at 10.30 and not finishing till 4.30 in the morning. And he was like, well, I got an exam tomorrow. So this is way more important than an exam. But I won't be able to go to, well, just don't go to school tomorrow. Your heart is more important than the exam. Your heart is more important uh, than going to school. So let's do it. And it was frustrating too, because like at, at midnight, I thought we had it wrapped up. I thought we had it wrapped up. And I was like, okay. So we're agreeing, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a repetitive guy, so reviewing the whole thing, the deal that we had made, and, and he's nodding in that. And, and then I noted something in him that was like, man, he's not really in this thing. I said, you're, you're not buying this. And he was like, mm. I was like, ah, you know, we got to keep going. But you know what? It was worth going. My wife and I talked about that time period so, so many different times to say, I'd rather work it out with you. I'd rather stay up for two nights in a row and not go to bed until we work our problems out. Because I know if we don't, hurt feelings, anger, bitterness, hard-heartedness. And I don't want to have a hard heart towards anybody. Not to my wife, not to my kids, not to you. We work things out in the real time. And that's what God is saying here. He's releasing his righteous anger because he's not going to have his righteous anger against his people forever, right? And what he's going to do by compassion and by hesed love is he's going to provide a mechanism 
for forgiveness for them. So I put it this way on your outlines for the replace. Pretty easy. Replace your anger with, with what? With compassion. If you have compassion for people, you will not be able to be angry with them. If you're willing to work it out with them, if you're willing to reason with them, if you're willing to stay up till 4.30 in the morning, praying, talking, not losing your temper, but helping people and helping yourself, you know what? You're going to live a peaceful life in Christ. You will live a peaceful life in Christ. Don't let your anger ever own your life. Replace your anger with compassion. When you reconcile anger and hurt feelings, it's time now for forgiveness. We talked about forgiving like Christ. Who is like him? Who is like him? You and I are like him. And now we're at a place where, okay, I'm willing to, I'm willing to repent of this whole idea of anger towards another person. Where they're willing to repent before me and say, you know, I'm done being angry with you. Now the next level comes up. Look at our passage again. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Let me read that again. God will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You see, real forgiveness is like that. Here's the word. I remember, remember, remember. Nobody wants to have their sin remembered. Nobody wants to walk around with life going, oh, I remember that time you did this and that, and you don't look good in it. You don't like that. You don't like to have someone remind you of the poor decisions that you made as a, as a husband or as a wife or as a mother or as a son. And that is exactly the, the qualitative nature of the forgiveness of God. I remember your sin no more. As far as the east is from the west, I remember your sin no more. You see, when we sin, we've got to do two things. One of those things is vertical, right? It's with God. I sin, I'm going to go to God. It's against you, you only have I sinned. I've done what's unrighteous in your eyes. And not only do I say, I'm sorry, but I say something else. I won't do it again. And that's called repentance. It's like uh, when we had little kids and they'd run in the Walmart parking lot and we grab a hold of them and say, hey, don't run in the Walmart parking lot or you're going to get run over. And my kid look at me and go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I'd be like, and, and? I won't do it again. You see, you could say you're sorry over and over and over again. But if you don't say you're sorry and I won't do it again, which is the repentance part, it doesn't work. Some of the lamest apologies I ever hear are from high school students. I'm sorry, high school students that are out there. But they'll walk in and they go, oh, well... All right, Mom, well, you know, if I hurt your feelings and if you feel really bad about it, Mom, um, well, okay, you know, well, if you feel bad about it, then I guess I'm sorry. I guess I am. That's not an apology. An apology is taking full ownership of the fact that you've hurt another human being. And it doesn't have a whole bunch of exclusions and a whole bunch of other things. It comes straight to the point. 
And whether you did it on purpose or whether you didn't do it on purpose, if you've harmed somebody, you own it. You own it. And not only do you own it, you get to a place of saying, look, I did this and I'm really sorry for it and I won't do it again. Because if I say I'm sorry and I do it again, what are you going to think? You're not very sorry. Repentance, along with the confession, are critically important elements. Contriteness, honest ownership of sin, real confession, real repentance, it's critically important. But the big idea is we don't remember the sin. How many times I'll sit in marriage counseling appointments and I'll tell couples, you know what, I need to get a background. We'll get a background. We'll figure it all out. And both of them will have done horrible things to one another. Rock'em, sock'em robots, right? Really bad. And then I'll say to them, let's, let's be done with that. Let's not look at the rear view mirror of your marriage. Let's not go back here and pull muck out and throw it at one another. But you know, that's what we do. Because we're harmed and we feel like, man, I don't get a, a real forgiveness. There wasn't real vindication in it. So I got to go back here and present it again to you and throw it at you. As opposed to that when we're done with it and there's, there's real integrity and real faith in our relationship and you apologize and I say, I accept. I forgive you. As far as you I won't even talk about this anymore. It's over. It's finished. It's done. And for me to bring it back up again would be horrible. Nobody wants their sin remembered. I don't want my sin remembered. I want, I want to have the faithfulness of God who died for my sin on a cross to cover my sin. And I want the the faithfulness of my brothers and sisters in Christ who will forgive me to be able to say, I forget. And I put it this way, the third point on your outline is forget others' sins. Forget others' sins. Matt Redman wrote a, uh, a tremendous, tremendous hymn called 10,000 Reasons. I love 10,000 Reasons. Would you turn to Psalm 103 with me? Right in the middle of your Bible, pull the Psalter out and we'll take a look at Psalm 103. I don't know if you know that, but this song, do you know the song, 10,000 Reasons? Not if you do, a couple of you know that song. Do you know it comes from Psalm 103? Matt Redman was hanging out with this other guy and, and they, they pulled the Psalter out and they started reading and, and then next thing you know, a guitar here, a lyric there. And from Psalm 103 came a great hymn uh, for the church, 10,000 Reasons. Look at verse number 8. We'll jump into the middle of it. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love is hesed, right? He, he, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the hesed, the steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? It's infinite, right? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Look with me in Hebrews chapter number 8. Hebrews chapter number 8. <clears throat> Same idea. The writer of Hebrews, writing from the New Covenant, 
uh, which, you know, talks about Jesus Christ and, <coughs> and the forgiveness of sin. Look at Hebrews number, uh, chapter number 8. The new covenant from Jeremiah 31 repeated here. Look at verse number 8. <coughs> For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant that I've made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, uh, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They shall not teach each, uh, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will what? What's it say? I will remember their sins no more. I can tell you there's not any more of an emotional moment uh, a moment as a pastor that you'll see is when you see a husband and wife sitting at the table of reconciliation, seeing, seeing some horrible things that had been interacted between a married couple, and seeing someone in that relationship step up and say, it's on me. It's on me. It had nothing to do with you. It didn't have to do with the fact that you were upset or dealing with another problem. It was all about me. And I'm sorry. And when that I'm sorry comes out, and I won't do it again follows it, there's that moment of truth. As a counselor and as a pastor, you just sit there and go, what are they going to say? This was pretty bad. Adultery, multiple adultery, lying, deception, the worst things you could ever think about. And he just said he was sorry, with tears streaming down his eyes. What's she going to do? What will she do? And there's that moment when she looks at her husband, tears rolling down her eyes. It says, I forgive you. I forgive you. And not only do I forgive you, we'll never discuss this ever again. It's a new start. Our marriage is starting over. Not in the worst of our fights, in the toughest moments of my insecurity. I will not bring this up again. I'm done with it. I can't even explain to you the level of freedom that is provided in that statement. I can't explain to you the burden that was lifted off of that person in that room. It's an incredible moment. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Willing, obedient people. 
But the key was, I'll remember it. You won't hear about it ever again. It's done. It's finished for me. It's over. Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sins and mine. And that means that today, if we're, if we're not really walking with the Lord, today ought to be the day. It's one of the best things I could tell you in this world that Jesus Christ died for you and for me. We're sinful people. We can't account for these sins on our own. We need to appropriate the Savior. We need to appropriate His works on the cross. I would not want any of us to stand before a holy God and not have the protection of the cross. How do you get that? Simple. Simple. Real confession. Real repentance of sin. And then simply trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if we do that, we'll get the gift of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee and a deposit in the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and that we are saved. And nobody can take that away. Nobody can take that away. If we confess our sins, this Jesus is faithful. He's just to forgive us. He forgives us of all of our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What a great promise that is knowing that we have one who is an advocate for us each and every day. Did you notice at the end of the Micah passage that we were studying today, that even in the face of judgment, even in the face of judgment against the sinful people that God had, that God comes out faithful. Those people were sinful. God sent multiple prophets multiple people to call them to repentance, and they didn't. Micah is one of the first prophets that tells the, uh, the southern kingdom that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And in 586 B.C., it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar came to town. But what's interesting about the passage, all these promises, everything that God has given here in this, that he's going to reason with us, a God who is merciful. His anger doesn't last forever. He's compassionate. The same God who's not only compassionate is going to take our sins and put them under his feet, throw them and cast them far away. That's the God we have. And he does it because he's faithful. In this passage, he's faithful to a covenant he made. One with Abraham, one with Jacob. And no matter how bad those people were, he was going to be good to the remnant, no matter what. And that is a great promise that we have a God who doesn't lie, a God whose, whose promises we can rely upon. Now that is certainly something comforting. Micah, Mihi El, who is like God? You are. You are like God in this. I pray that this week would be a week where you and me would commit to working out difficult relationships, problems that we have with other people. And if not, take this message and help people that you know that are in struggle to help them figure it out. Let's be a congregation that works their problems out. Let's be a congregation that lives with a peace of God implanted in our heart. 
Let us be a congregation that through our love for one another, our God will be glorified. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. What a great privilege it is to stand here in this building. God, I remember when, uh, when the opportunity was, uh, was brought forward uh, back in October. It seemed like such a long shot. And yet you are a God who is faithful and can do immeasurably more than any of us have ever thought or have known or could ever think and imagine. And we thank you and we worship a God that is a great God, a majestic God like that God. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in Huntington Beach that you would edify those that are here today, that you would continue to grow them. I pray with the excitement of, of Easter coming that we would be men and women that would be excited about inviting people to come here to church to hear the gospel, to see real life change. So God, help take us from, uh, from being settlers to being explorers, people that really want to see life change. And God, in this passage that, uh, that your servant Micah has provided for us, God, what a great passage of scripture. Help us to be like you in this. Help us to forgive the way that you forgive others. Help us to, to find compassion in areas where sometimes we don't want to provide compassion. God, I pray that we would be men and women that would fix our problems in the real time, that we wouldn't just let them go. God, we want to be like the Thessalonian church that's been preached about so well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the gospel rang out. And I know the gospel is ringing out from this place. Help us, Lord, as we move forward today in our relationships and the things that we do. God, I pray that you protect this church. Protect this church in every way possible. God, protect this church from the enemy and the enemy's attack. God, I pray that you protect also Pastor Bobby, his staff, the people that are here. God, we know this is an evil world, and we ask and beg you for protection. God, we ask also that your hand would rest upon the ministries here, upon this pulpit, upon the, the, the worship, upon all the kids' ministry, everything that is here, Father. We pray your hand would be on it. And God, we know that you're a good and great God. And God, knowing that, we ask that you, a good and great God, would do good and great things to these people and through these people. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.